Welcome to the MS Gym Podcast, where we give you the tools to live life by design, not by diagnosis. I'm your host, Brooke Slick, and here we go. Today's episode is all about wheelchair and accessible travel. But our guest, though an international expert in this field, brings way more to the table than just that. For instance, she's an award-winning accessible travel writer, blogger, photographer, travel agent, author, entrepreneur, and disability rights advocate. She's a service-disabled U.S. Air Force veteran, full-time wheelchair user, single mother, and former Miss Wheelchair USA. She is the founder of the award-winning Spin the Globe travel blog, where she shares her travel experiences from around the world in a power chair. Sharing tips and tricks from her own travels, she gives fellow wheelchair users the tools and confidence to create their own travel adventures without fear. Her travel articles have been featured in the New York Times, New Mobility Magazine, and Lonely Planet, and she's published three accessible travel-related books on her own. And I don't want to forget her 130 travel-related videos that she's created and produced from around the world. Videos led to voiceover work, and that led to voiceover acting. Sylvia is a powerhouse, but there's more. Though all the accomplishments I've mentioned so far are related to what we're going to be talking about today, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of the most intriguing areas of her resume. Sylvia is an expert on Mexico's drug war and border security and has been a frequent guest on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NBC Nightly News, and many more. She's also been a guest expert on the History Channel's Brad Meltzer's Decoded in America's War on Drugs and has consulted for the producers of the National Geographic's Border Wars and Drugs, Inc. series. She's also an author of two books on these issues, as well as hundreds of articles for Homeland Security publications. To say that Sylvia is more than her MS wouldn't do her accomplishments any justice. Join me now as I get the inside scoop from Sylvia on why travel post-disability is possible, is way more accessible than you might imagine, and how your dream of traveling solo with a disability is absolutely achievable. Let's go. Sylvia, thank you so, so much for coming on today. Thank Um, you for having me. I, I I am beyond thrilled to have you here for so many reasons. Um, But I think I want to set the tone for this conversation with a quote that I found of yours in doing some research on you. Um, Because in the intro, I already gave everybody a lot of information about who you are, what you do, what you've done. But I thought this was really cool. Okay, here's the quote. I almost enjoy it when people find out I have MS and say, I'm so sorry. I always think to myself, if they only knew, they don't know I travel all over the world in a wheelchair and almost always by myself. They don't know my travel writing and photography have won awards or that I run three small businesses and a nonprofit. They don't know I'm a top expert and author on border security or that I've been seen on TV more times than I can remember. They don't know I'm a veteran or a single mother of two amazing boys who inspire me to be the best me possible. They don't know it's my mission in life to not only see the world as a wheelchair user, but to eliminate the fear so many people have of going out into it. Those three words have no place in my dream. That just struck me. I was like, oh, I was like, my heart you know, skip to beat there for a minute. I, I think that's why you inspire me. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I think you're going to inspire a lot of listeners also. And even though you are a wheelchair user and you specialize in wheelchair accessible travel, I think a lot of the information that you're going to provide today is going to inspire travelers of all different levels of disability, including myself who loves to travel, but even I, I use two trekking poles and, and, Mm. you know, I have travel fear and I think of all these amazing places I'd like to go. 
Um, but you have been, how, how many countries have you been since you've been a wheelchair user? Alone? 49. 49. For, uh, 49, 49 in a wheelchair and 35 of those by myself. Okay. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to reel it back a little and start, sure. start back from the beginning. Um, you were in the air force and yes. in what year did your symptoms and what symptoms first came to light that, that let you know, Hmm, something might be going on here. Sure. Uh, it was August of 2003, and I, was, I had just moved to Tampa, Florida. My Air Force assignment uh, was to go to graduate school as part of a special program where the Air Force pays for your master's degree in a specific regional specialty. And for me, that was Latin American and Caribbean studies. And then after you get your graduate degree, they move you back to an assignment in a base where you use that specialty in your job, and you pay the Air Force back with a three-year commitment. So I was, I, had, I hadn't even started my classes yet. I was just driving down the street uh, on my way back to my apartment when I lost about 75% of the vision in my right eye. Uh -huh. And it was, like somebody put, it was like somebody put a gray scarf over my eye. And it was like, I mean, literally, it was like, boom. So yeah. I was like, okay, this isn't normal. Mm -hmm. So I went to see the eye doctor who referred me to a neuro-ophthalmologist. Long story short, uh, I was diagnosed with neuro-optic um, uh, neuritis. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, they did the blood tests. I had an MRI done and everything else was fine. But, you know, what, you start getting a little freaked out when you go on Dr. Google. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so, but of course, you know, I'm, an, I'm an analyst. I'm a researcher. So I couldn't help myself. And uh, after hours and hours of research, I, the closest thing I could come to was that I had about a, anywhere from a 30% to a 70% chance of down the road getting diagnosed with MS. Yeah. Now, the only exposure I had to MS or anything I had heard of was President Jed Bartlett in the West Wing, and I didn't know uh -huh. anybody with MS and really didn't know anything about it, so it was, you know, kind of throwing myself down the rabbit hole, and uh, so, yeah, that was, that was my very first symptom, and then over the next couple of years, and I was on active duty at the time, so the, the best advice that my neurologist gave me at the time was to document everything because mm -hmm. the military is the, the military is notoriously picky about uh, what they choose. If you get right. medically discharged or medically retired and you want to get as many benefits as possible. Right. So that's where my journey started of documenting any little twitch, any little twinge, any little everything mm -hmm. uh, and getting lots of tests. And it was, it was a long road. It was two and a half years uh, before I got the diagnosis. Wow. And at that point, were, did you, as soon as you were diagnosed, were you like, okay, that's it, I have to leave my job, or how did, how did that go? Well, obviously, you don't know what the future holds with MS because right. everybody's progression is totally different, but I will say that the, that psychological grieving process that everybody goes through, whether somebody dies or you get diagnosed with cancer or whatever the case is, mm -hmm. that process started with the optic neuritis because I just kind of knew that eventually that's the road that my health was going to take. Now, I'm not particularly a religious person. My mom is, so there was a lot of praying going on, you know, in my family and everything. But I'm, a, I'm more of a, of a practical person and kind of a realist. So uh, there was a lot, there were a lot of tears and a lot of emotions. And my mom, fortunately, is very practical as well. So I did as much research as I could. And I was very careful about, you know, keeping an eye on my health and going to the doctor and I really started to accept this as a possibility, especially as I started to experience more neurological symptoms, mm -hmm. um, kind of as a confirmation of, you know, this is the thing where you need to mentally and psychologically prepare. Right. So, and being in the military kind of gives you that mindset of, you know, kind of suck it up buttercup and, and you deal with whatever is put in front of you and you just kind of, you deal with it. You just grab it and you deal with it. Mm -hmm. So when I went through that whole being sad and being in denial and being angry and everything, so by the time the diagnosis came two and a half years later and the doctor said, oh yeah, by the way, you check off all the boxes and, and the diagnosis was on paper, I was, okay. <laughs> I just said, okay, when can you get me on treatment? That was the first thing I said to the doctor was, when can I come in? When can you put me on the shots? And I told, I called my mom. And my mom was the same way. She wasn't hysterical because we expected it. We had planned for it. Right. And she was the same. She asked me the same thing. When are you going to go in and, and when are you going to get put on treatment? 
Uh, and that was, that was kind of it. So, uh, and then the next step, of course, was to either push to stay in on active duty temporarily, or at least as long as I could, because I was working a desk job at um, my agency's headquarters at the time. Uh, and I wasn't out in the field or anything like that. And I was still, my body was fully functional. But the Air Force said that if you can't deploy, then we can't keep you in. So at that point, it became lobbying for medical retirement as opposed to a medical discharge so I could get full benefits. Um, so then that was, that was kind of all I could put in front of me at the time. Uh, and I didn't know what the future would hold as far as employment. And that got me freaked out after after I was medically retired and I moved out to Texas, I had just gotten married a few months earlier. And that was kind of when the world came crashing down going, because uh, I'm a workaholic, <laughs> you guys, you kind of, um, you know, going through my, my resume and my jobs. And, yeah, and that's kind uh, of I identify a lot. Yeah, I, I identify a lot with my work. And that was really kind of the most difficult thing. But at the time, it was more about getting my ducks in a row for making sure that I had uh, good health care and my medication, and that the VA process uh, for getting benefits was taken care of. So it was, it was just too overwhelming and too much to, to think that far ahead at that time. Right. So then what was your first, what came first? Did, did you, because I know you even now continue to be an expert, a called upon expert. Um, in your field of border security and drug wars and like, did you maintain, you know, did you keep one foot in the door when it came to that as far as, you know, employment or career or? Yes. I mean, I've been doing that now for 11 years. Uh, I, I haven't written, I have two books under my belt on those issues and my last book came out in 2014, but the last several years, I've been writing for uh, different publications. I've been writing for American Military University for their in-homeland security blog uh, for the last three years as one of their contributing editors. And things have been, I guess you could say a little quiet because of coronavirus. And obviously, there are still yeah. immigration issues and border security issues and things going on. And uh, with politics being what they are, I I'm, I'm never have a shortage of things to, to write about and talk about. But uh, now I'm doing more podcasts with them on different issues uh, related to border security. So I'm not doing as much with that anymore because it's just, you know, my, my passions have kind of moved on and it's, it's, it's hard because nothing has really improved and it, it's difficult to stay motivated to write and talk about an issue where you're hoping that your efforts will make some sort of change or, or get people to understand a little more in depth what's going on. But for an issue like you know, drug trafficking and weapons trafficking and human smuggling, it, it, it wears a lot on your soul. It's a very heavy issue. Right. So I, I'm glad that I'm still involved, but I'm not nearly as involved as I used to be. So my career has kind of uh, evolved uh, beyond that. But yes, I, I still do work on that, on that subject. So when did you decide, because after all this happened, if you've been to X amount of countries as a wheelchair user and many of those alone, when did you decide to start doing that? That was kind of an interesting uh, thing. So I've been traveling since I was little, since I was five years old was my first foreign trip to, to Canada with my parents on a road trip from Florida, if you can believe that. Uh, so I, I, I was bitten by the travel bug very early in life. And before I got married, when I was uh, single in the Air Force in my 20s, and nobody had either the time or the money or the interest in traveling with me. And I didn't really feel like waiting around for that. So I decided to start traveling by myself and went to Europe alone for the first time and had a couple of Air Force trips while I was on active duty, once to Japan and to Panama and a short two-week uh, deployment to Paraguay. And just travel has just always been in my blood. But I got married in 2005 and my ex-husband loved to travel before we got married. But after we have kids, he kind of lost interest. And um, so my passport kind of started collecting dust. And, but I was, you know, I was busy with other things. I was busy with work and, and, you know, helping raise our two kids and, uh, and everything, but travel definitely took a back seat for a very long time. And then I got divorced, uh, in 2015 and my kids live with their dad during the school year. I have them during the summer and I moved to Florida to be close to my family. Uh, he moved to his next assignment in Alabama with my kids. So I found myself 
living alone for the first time in what you know 10 years <laughs> and i've been so used to doing the work from home mom thing and waking up early and getting them to school and making lunches and you know doing all the stuff that a, that a mom does and then all of a sudden i'm i'm here by myself and newly divorced and in a new place and without my stuff and uh it was a lot to deal with so i needed something to help me heal and gain some perspective and just kind of get out of that space for a little while. So travel just seemed to be the thing. And I planned a road trip. I was, I was still able to walk a little bit at the time with the help of a walker. And I had um, two devices uh, on, my, on my legs that helped with my, my foot drop. Okay. Uh, two walk aids. And I was still able to use a regular rental car with hand controls. Uh, and so I could put the scooter in the trunk. And so I had, I had long story, I had more mobility than I have now. Mm -hmm. So I, I did a, like a week long road trip out on the Southwest, which is my, one of my favorite parts of the United States. And um, just, you know, it just kind of reminded me of how much I love traveling by myself. Uh, and uh, that started to kind of give me the confidence to do that uh, and to get back out there again. And then in February of the following year, I went a little crazy. Uh, I have a couple of friends who are travel addicts like me and they were living in Dubai at the time okay. and both working as, as professors. And, uh, they had an open invitation to their friends to go visit. And I had been wanting to go to Dubai for a long time. So I said, Hey, what do you think if I go out there? Uh, and will you help me out? You know, I'm, I'm in a scooter and rent a manual chair for the harder stuff and will you help me out? And they were over the moon about it. And it was an amazing trip, but oh my God, 16 hours on a plane from Orlando direct to Dubai was brutal. Wow. Uh, but I did it. You know, we had, it was an amazing trip. And then after that, I said, you know, if I can do Dubai and 16 hours on a plane and do all of this stuff in a scooter, then uh, I, everything else is kind of easier after that. So the trips just started kind of rolling in. I went on a Alaska cruise a few months after that. Then after the summer with my boys, I went to Iceland by myself and I went to Australia by myself. And I, I have been a professional writer for so long. And I, I kind of had like a blog where I had been writing about life with MS, but it wasn't, I, I, it was only a couple of people like friends and family who were reading it. It wasn't a professional endeavor of, of any sort. But I had started coming across travel blogs for wheelchair users in the process of researching the trips I was going on. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, if I'm a professional writer, why am I not blogging about this? Right, and what, what, right. what, what's out there? What's out there that I can't do or that I can't do better? So I, that's when Spin the Globe was born, was in November of 2016. And I started kind of putting all my stuff in there. And that's where I really started to learn about what it takes to create a truly professional blog with um, SEO and, and, and right. social media promotion and everything that goes along with turning a blog into a business. Right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I've been traveling almost nonstop ever since. And that's the thing, you know, you say about going, and I'm sure to a lot of people, you know, you said you traveled to Dubai, um, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. I looked at the list of the places. <laughs> yeah that you have been that it just amazed me not not so much not even so much how many different places you've gone but places that you've gone that i'd love to go but because i have a disability and as i said i only have trekking pole i i would never imagine that i would be able to either safely go or it wouldn't it'd be accessible enough and as I look down over this list, I'm thinking to myself, how, you know, when she got there, you know, I imagine you getting off the plane, getting to the hotel, and then you're like, okay, now what? How do I actually, I'm in this fabulous location. How do I navigate around some of these places? Um, Fortunately, like, I have a lot of help. <laughs> I do a lot of homework. <laughs> well, exactly. I would imagine a large part of it is homework. Um, you can't just show up and hope that everything's going to be accessible for you. Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. And do you think that a lot of it is that you can see and do almost anything? You just have to do it in a different way? I think that's part of it. And I, I do a lot of presentations, kind of accessible travel 101 for people who are interested in, in travel in a wheelchair with their mobility aids and aren't really sure 
how to get started. And, you know, getting over fear is, is the biggest, the biggest thing. But also one of the things that I really focus on is you have to know what your ability, what your limitations are. And those limitations aren't just physical, they're, they're psychological as well, because we, we tend to get in our own way a lot of times when, when we have disabilities and, yes. and are afraid to do things where, where we might get hurt or we just yes. don't want to, you know, we just don't want to, we want to be in a safe space. And trust me, I totally, totally get that. Um, but when it comes to travel, I, 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 I'm all about incremental steps. So I, like I said, that trip to Dubai was absolutely crazy and I would not recommend that to anybody <laughs> as your first trip. I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out, you know, but I actually got really, really sick on the day I was, the night I was supposed to come home. I got food poisoning oh and I had to stay an extra two days and it was a nightmare. It, I, it was still worth it. I mean, the trip was amazing and I'm glad I was with two friends, but I'm like, if I had been by myself, Right. which is what I normally do. That would have been awful. But there's some things you can plan for and some things you can't. But as far as is is testing your limits, different activities that I do or places that I stay or things that I'm willing to do, if I don't know what my limits are, then you can you can get into a lot of trouble. So I I get a little more brave with each trip and, and places that I go just because I'm, I'm trying. And there are some things where I'm just like, no, you know, I won't do it. Uh, and, and some of those limits aren't necessarily uh, logistical as far as like my wheelchair is not going to be able to do that. Or I would need to be in a manual chair with somebody strong accompanying me. So I couldn't do it by myself or, you know, some of it is that, but for instance, right. a, a really good friend of mine, uh, Corey Lee, uh, who's uh, been to all seven continents recently. And he went on a cruise. It was like a, a three-week cruise with his mom and, and, and friend and went down to Antarctica. And of course, I would love to go to Antarctica. That would be amazing. And the photos that he sent and his experience was absolutely incredible. But you can pay me enough money to cross the Drake for two days, the Drake Passage. Like, I don't get seasick. It's not that, but two days of possible like 40-foot seas, just no, that's not wow. my gig. And I, it's just not. And I mean, some people, that's no big deal. And, and he said it was worth it. And they had some rough weather, but yeah, he, he said it was totally worth it. Me, I would rather save up money for a couple of years and take that little two-hour flight that goes from the tip of South America, land, you know, be on the, be on the ground on the ice for like a couple hours, turn around and go back. Like that's, that's more my style of travel. So, but you know, everybody has their, everybody has their limits, but you have to know what they are. Right. And the only way to know what they are is to test them and you can't test your limits if you're, you know, if you're not going out there and trying something new and a lot of that I do, I do a few trips, uh, with my best friend or with a couple, a couple of really close friends that I have. So about one trip a year I'll do with somebody else and I will save those trips for things that are a little more challenging. So that way, if I get any trouble, I, I have somebody there with me. Right. Or if I do travel by myself, uh, if I do travel alone, many times I'm with an accessible tour company. Uh, that's local. So if I'm doing the research, and there are many places I go without any tour support whatsoever, um, but if it's a place that there's no way either I need the tour company to help with transportation or tours or access to certain places, uh, there's somebody there to help me out that knows the lay of the land, especially if it's in a foreign country. Uh, right. So uh, so yeah, I, it takes a lot of research, a lot of planning, and uh, I'm definitely not afraid to, to ask for and, and get help if I need it. What what is the worst situation that like the the worst bind you've ever gotten in? obviously uh, still here with us you're you still have that wonderful sense of humor about everything yeah so it I do now it didn't break you but what is oh one bind that you were just like oh my gosh i should have xyz or why didn't i xyz yeah well, you know, some of it, some of it has been in my control and some of it hasn't. And there have definitely been some, you know, oh, you know, oh crap moments. I'm definitely not going to use harsh language <laughs> as I normally would. I'll just say, you know, oh crap moments. Um, so uh, one of them was my, my, one, one of my biggest ones. I was still using a scooter. I use a, a, a different wheelchair now, but I was using my three wheel scooter and I was going from Frankfurt. Uh, Germany to Ljubljana, Slovenia. And it was, I was at Frankfurt airport and I had just, I was in the process of boarding the plane and it, the plane was out on the tarmac. It wasn't at a gate a, with a jet bridge. And I was in one of those 
uh, ambulifts, which is basically like a little you know box truck that raises up so you can roll right into the door of the plane. And they had transferred me from my scooter to an aisle chair in the box truck and then an ambulift. And then one of the ramp guys came to take my scooter and roll it out to the cargo hold at the other end of the plane. Well, for whatever reason, and I, I don't know what happened because I couldn't see that far, but this is my best guess, is that they forgot to put the scooter into neutral and they were rolling it along and pushing it along. And somehow in the process, the tire on the front wheel of my three-wheel scooter came off of the rim. And I could see them struggling to fix it while they were trying to put it on the conveyor belt to get it into the hold. And they didn't fix it. So they put in a broken scooter into the hold of the plane. And that was the longest hour, especially on a plane in my life. And I'm freaking out. And they were able to get, you know, tell the captain what was going on. And the captain said, don't worry, we're going to take care of it. But I'm, I'm losing my mind. And I had no way at the time of contacting my tour guide. Thank God I had a tour guide waiting for me at the airport in Ljubljana. So I got there. And of course, they had to put me in a manual chair while we were waiting for the scooter to come off. And I told him what was going on. And he said, don't worry, we'll take care of you. We'll figure it out. And uh, we're, we're friends to this day, <laughs> which is, oh which is gosh. awesome. But fortunately, 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 they got the scooter off the plane. And uh, a couple of guys in the maintenance uh, shop at the Lubiana Airport were able to, to put it back on the rim and tighten everything up. And, and it was good to go. But man, I, I shared, I shed some tears that day. Oh, I um, bet. So that was, yeah, that was, that was a bit of a jam because, and that's the risk that I knowingly take that if something happens to my chair right. or my scooter at the other end, well, you know, I got to turn around and go back home because I can't, I can't use a manual chair. And especially, I, I can but only for kind of short dis distances first because of the fatigue and second i just don't have the upper body strength to do it i'm a power i'm a power wheelchair user that's just right. that's just what it is so so yeah that that's a risk that i that i take and i i totally get it um but yeah that was one of them and uh one time where i almost missed my connecting flight in frankfurt because the bus driver uh, messed up and took me to the wrong place and because the connection was shorter than i normally accept I decided to just let my personal chair go from one plane to the next because I didn't want to risk being late. So I'm here in a manual wheelchair in the Frankfurt airport. And if I had missed the flight, my chair was probably going to go with the plane back to Orlando. And I would have been stuck in Frankfurt overnight in a manual chair by myself without my stuff. I mean, I had my backpack. Um, and uh, that would have been just, I, I've never been so stressed out for that, from missing that flight. And I would have managed, you know, that would, that was not, I would have figured it out, but I didn't want to have to figure it out. Um, and you know, there are other situations too, just landing in Shanghai at midnight and, uh, with six hours late and oh, them God. not being able to find my chair after an hour. Um, and then the entire, oh man, the entire flight crew at midnight, the entire flight crew stayed on that plane with me for an hour until they found my chair. Oh. Um, the captain the captain was calling back to Delta headquarters in Atlanta, yelling at them to get this figured out. But the problem is in China, because of the government, they would not allow anybody on the plane, on the crew to get out onto the ramp and help them look for the chair. Uh, so it was, it was, oh yeah, it was, I'm like, oh my God. It's one thing. It's like, well, you know, if I'm in France or, you know, England or whatever, and that happens, you know, no big deal. I'll figure it out. But dude, I'm in communist China. <laughs> yeah. Like how do you keep your cool with that? Oh, Good God. Yeah. I wasn't even in Hong Kong. Like I'm in mainland China, but no, they found the chair and everything worked out. But uh, yeah, I've, I've had a few scrapes. I've had a few scrapes. Tell me this, out of all the countries you've been to, which one of these countries would probably most surprise travelers that it's way more accessible than you'd ever imagine? Um, I would have to say maybe Singapore or South Korea. Yeah. Because um, Asia, you know, Asia doesn't have a, a great uh, reputation for accessibility, particularly Southeast Asia, mainland China. Um, South Korea, I, I went to Seoul and some parts around Seoul, but Seoul was awesome, was awesome. They didn't, uh, they, I never used the buses there, but their subway system is fantastic. And the accessibility of the sidewalks and the hotels and everything was fantastic. 
Singapore is one of my favorite places in the world and the accessibility. It was one of the few places in the world where I've been to where I could actually assume that wherever I went would be accessible. I did all my homework, don't get me wow. wrong, but I, could, I, felt, I felt as confident there in the accessibility as I did in the United States, which is really a rare thing. Wow. So uh, yeah, so that was, that was really surprising. Um, Shanghai had its, uh, had its things because um, they don't have any accessible buses, but their subway is mostly wheelchair accessible. I was able to take the subway without any issues. I took the subway out to Shanghai Disneyland, and there are a couple of stops that don't have elevators, but you'll find that even in Europe. Um, so, uh, and no accessible taxis. So I kind of had to work around. The transportation was a little challenging. But as far as like the stores and, and getting around, it was a lot easier, definitely a lot easier than I expected in Shanghai and mainland China. That was, that was pretty good. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. It sounds like patience plays a big role as well. <laughs> I would, I oh, would you imagine. Have, you have no idea. You know, <laughs> I would imagine that even if they are accessible, it's still you've got to do a little rethinking of how you're doing everything. Um, and as you continue to say, homework is everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that patience, it's a, it's a mindset too. And I'm, I am notoriously impatient for yeah. most things. I have been my whole life, but when it comes to the accessibility stuff, you don't really have a choice. And a lot of that patience has to do with being patient with people because a lot of people have never come across the needs of a wheelchair user and don't really understand what accessibility, everybody's got kind of a different definition of that. Yeah. Um, especially if you're, if you're not a wheelchair user or don't have a disability yourself. But as far as the attitude is, there are two different kinds of people. There are the people that say, that see the obstacle and say, well, crap, you know, I, 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 I can't do that. That sucks. I'm just going to kind of turn around and go home because it, it's, you can't do it. And then there are the people who say, all right, well, crap, you know, there's an obstacle. Let me figure out and let me get creative and right. figure out how I, can, how I can be flexible and how I can get around this. Right. So if you can't go through it, get around. Now, to acknowledge, everybody has their own personal uh, boundaries, all right? My, my, my personal boundaries are minimal. Uh, and generally other people feel more uncomfortable than I do when it comes to getting around these boundaries. Like I don't mind getting picked up and placed somewhere or taken somewhere. I don't because if the only thing standing between me and an amazing experience is somebody picking me up and putting me in a golf cart or putting me right. in, a, in a vehicle or putting me on, on a, on a camel or whatever, like, I don't care. <laughs> I, now, now my, Mind you, I've, mind you, I've had two children in front of, you know, uh, many strangers in a delivery room. So right. once you've had that experience, once you've had that, that experience, you lose a lot of modesty. I'm not going to lie. Right. I, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of kind of finishing my, my travel memoirs and I have an entire chapter on, on getting, you know, picked up and carried and all the experiences I've been able to do that. I actually got uh, proposed to once by a, a very nice gentleman who was carrying me from my uh, power wheelchair into a game vehicle uh, at a game reserve in South Africa. And it was just so hilarious. Um, but uh, so, yeah. And you know, that's, that's for me. I'm like, well, that's not, a, if I need to get in that helicopter, somebody's going to have to pick me up and put me in the helicopter. So right. I get right. to go in a helicopter, I get to go in a helicopter, you know, but everybody's different. For some right. people, it might be too, it might be too painful. Like somebody who has like Ehlers-Danos, I don't remember the exact way to pronounce it. Yes. Um, but they, they could just getting picked up and put somewhere, they could dislocate something or somebody yes. could uh, fracture a bone. You know, everybody is totally different. And some people are just very uncomfortable. And I, and I totally get that. Um, but uh, so it's, it may be easier for me to get around these obstacles just because I have lower boundaries and, and my, my priorities are a little bit different. So it's, it's really good for you to take a, a self-assessment of what you're comfortable doing and is it more important for you to not have anybody touch you or more important to uh, take that ride in the helicopter? <laughs> right, exactly. If that's the only thing between you and that helicopter ride, it's like time for a little soul searching right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, tell me this, something that I've noticed in my travels is that the, the person who has the disability, the person who's using, you know, whatever device, I think a lot of how people react to you has a lot to do with how you are acting. 
with what you exude, what type of energy, what type of, you know, if you're, if, and, and you in particular, when, and I first found you on Instagram, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this, this woman's a lot like me. Like, you're just like, yep, I have to do this, I have to do this, and I have to do this to get in and out of a bed, or this, and you do it with a smile on your face, and you're like, yep, that's how it is, you know, and I that's think how it that, is. that makes a huge difference in how people approach us, and how comfortable, and not that, you know, we're not here to make everybody comfortable about our situation, but right. the way we present ourselves, I think, has a lot to do with how people interact with us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, it's so it's so individual and it's so highly dependent. And I'm, I don't know, I don't like using the word lucky because I, don't, I honestly don't believe in luck. I believe more than when uh, preparation and opportunity meet, you know, that's when, that's when luck happens and things don't magically, good things and bad things don't just happily, uh, magically happen out of the sky. There are certain factors that lead up to that. Uh, so, you know, being fortunate and being lucky, I have a, a tricky relationship with that, but I will say that my, the personality that I have now and my attitude and outlook when it comes to, you know, projecting positivity in a wheelchair and travel, uh, that attitude came before I was diagnosed with MS. Now there are tons of people out there in wheelchairs who have been in wheelchairs or have had disabilities their entire lives. And that may make a difference. I don't know because that has not been my personal journey. But I know plenty of people who have always been in chairs and have significantly more severe disability than I do, who are even more positive than, than I am. So, and those people serve as inspirations to me because I know, and I'm grateful for it every day, I know that my situation could be a lot worse than it is. Right. So, so like when you were quoting is that when people say, I'm so sorry, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, I have MS. Yeah, there's no cure. Yeah, I can't walk. But, you know, dude, I could be, I could have a terminal illness. Uh, I could yeah. have a, a much more severe, I have use of my upper body, uh, even though like my right side is a little bit limited, but I can think clearly, I can work, I can still type and send emails. I can, I can have jobs. I can be a, a mom to my two kids. And a lot of people you know, can't do that. So that, that helps a lot with being positive, And I understand why there are so many people who have a different outlook. Right. So, um, I also, I, a lot of it in, I'm, I'm vain to an extent. Uh, a lot of that, what I project, especially when I travel has to do with my chair. And that sounds really kind of weird, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm very honest and I'm pretty out there when it comes to, you know, sharing and, and being honest about these things, because if, if you're a wheelchair user with MS, why are you, gonna, why are you going to be any other way? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I have uh, different chairs that I use. I have one chair that I use at home, but I travel with this really super duper futuristic little compact power chair. And uh, I, there's a lot of, I, would, I don't want to say a, a, a hierarchy, but I have a lot of envy when it comes to some wheelchair, some manual wheelchair users because they're so much more compact. Uh, they look so much more attractive. They're so much more flexible. And when you see these beautiful women in these chairs and posing and everything, and they're always in manual chairs. And I'm like, man, that looks really awesome. And they're always uh, exuding this, this confidence. And I'm like, I'm in this huge, you know, ugly black power chair with all of these wires and buttons and stuff like that. And it makes you kind of feel clunky and awkward. And so when I travel with this chair and, and the chair that I'm using now was actually invented by two Japanese engineers for their friend who was in a manual chair. And he felt very emasculated and, and weak because he felt like he was in a medical device. So they wanted to make something for him that looked futuristic and trendy and techy to kind of uh, change that for him. And it did. And when I travel in my chair now, I still, get, I still get attention for being what looks like a healthy woman in a chair, but for a different reason. And especially, God, this happened in China so many times. I had people wanting to take my picture 10 times a day because they were fascinated with my chair, but in a positive way. And, right. and, and, and somebody could say that that's, that's vain and it's superficial and, and go ahead and say that. That's fine. And I totally get that. Yeah. But being in a chair where people approach me and instead of approaching me with saying like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh, right. that was what, what or happened? What's, what's wrong? Yeah. What happened? What's wrong with you? Yeah. They're like, oh, those tires are so cool. Like the, the, the front tires are patented and they're super unique and all this and this. So when people start paying attention to my tech, 
and you looking at it as a positive right. thing as that man she's got a she's got like a Ferrari to get her from point A to point B right. that really affects my energy and it really improves my confidence when I go out there that if people look at me I don't automatically go to the default of oh they feel sorry for me oh they're staring at me because I'm you know in a chair or can't walk or I'm disabled it's like oh you know maybe they think my chair looks cool right. so it, that for me that works and uh, and I I wish it didn't I really wish it didn't I wish that people could either just look at me like any other passerby or somebody in a huge $30,000 rehab chair with a trach and just look at them as another passerby or right. somebody, an ampu, you know, a double amputee in a manual chair and look at them as another passerby and not focus so much on that. I, I wish that were the case, but you know, I people, know. human, human beings, you know, people. Yes. Um, so, but, and I have a lot of uh, friends who are in manual chairs, a lot of women in particular who have some really snazzy manual chairs and they get excited. Like, Oh, I got a purple one or I got a oh, pink yeah. one or I got these front caster wheels that light up. And, and you know, it's not, it's not who we are, but it's, it, it, our chairs are part of our identities and they are an extension of our bodies. Exactly. So, so and especially coming uh, from the perspective of a woman, like we care about our hair, you know, having, yes. having cancer and going through chemo and losing your hair. Like that's a big part of you, even though it's, it's just something on your body, but it, hey, I'm, I'm keeping it real and I'm trying to be really honest. So you know, having, having a nice chair or something that makes me feel comfortable and confident, I would say is just as important as having a hairstyle or clothing or shoes or, or yes. something that, that makes you feel confident in the same way. I 100% agree. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> uh, do you travel? Well, first of all, do you currently take any uh, disease modifying drugs? I do. I do. I've been on, I've been on Tysabri for uh, six years or seven years now, which is a lot longer than usual. Um, okay. But I did test positive for the JC virus about, okay. uh, yeah, about uh, three, two and a half years ago. Um, but so I have to monitor that very closely. And my titer levels are low enough that my neurologist feels comfortable keeping me on it because I've done so well. I have zero side effects. And I've had eight, I just had my last MRI a few weeks ago and I've had eight MRIs in a row with no changes. So, Incredible. Um, but I know eventually I'm, I'm pretty excited. Um, but I know eventually I have to get off of it. So I'm taking a look at a, uh, Maven clad. I'm going to switch to okay. that as soon as it's safe, but with COVID, um, Maven clad is an immunosuppressant, whereas okay. now Tysabri is only an immunomodifier. Right. So I think the last thing in the time of COVID that I need to be on is something that suppresses my immune system. So we're going to hold off on that as long as I can safely stay on Tysabri. So how do you incorporate your, I used to be on Tysabri, how do you incorporate that into your travel arrangements? Well, I, because I popped, Tysabri normally you're supposed to take it every four weeks. Yeah. And um, it, I started to kind of separate that because I was traveling so much and it was really hard to stay on a regular schedule. But it, I kind of had the perfect excuse when I started popping positive, uh, we decided to start spacing them out uh, a little bit longer. Okay. So for the last two, I would say for the last two years, I've been doing my infusions anywhere from two to three months apart instead of four weeks apart. Okay. And the, I guess there have been new studies showing that uh, doing the infusions every eight weeks as opposed to every four weeks had really shown no statistically significant uh, decrease in effectiveness. So uh, even though I've been spacing out the infusions more, but you know, as long as the, the titers are still staying low and my MRIs are still coming back and my progression, it's there, but it has been extremely slow. So, um, so yeah. That is very interesting. That is very interesting. But you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a neurologist. That's simply what's, you know, what's worked for me. So um, I have a, I'm really lucky. I have a great MS specialist and um, I'm with the uh, SCI clinic uh, at the VA. So I have two different healthcare teams and I'm very lucky because so many Americans that don't have the, uh, uh, don't have the, the privilege of good healthcare. So I'm really lucky that keep, they keep an eye out on all that for me. What is one thing beside a, a smartphone, one thing that you think any traveler with a disability, wheelchair, walker, cane, whatever it is, that they should not leave home without when they travel? A grabber and a roll of duct tape and zip ties. <laughs> I, actually, I, actually made a, I actually made a TikTok video about this. 
Really? So, yeah. And it's so funny because it's like, you know, especially with the duct tape and the zip ties, or you look like you're about to kidnap somebody. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, so duct tape is great because obviously everybody's wheelchair is different, but airlines do what airlines do. And, and unfortunately damage to your equipment is something that can happen anytime, anywhere. So if something pops off or something is loose, then between the zip ties and the, and the duct tape, you can usually kind of wrap it together and hold it together until you get home to get it repaired. Um, so that's been a big help. Uh, in, in hotel rooms, you never know what the, uh, what the duct tape is going to get useful for from holding down cords, uh, power cords, or right. just, so a funny story. So I, I traveled a lot with my kids, not this past summer, but the summer before. And we went to Toronto for several days and it was a, it was a residence in and I fully expected things to be pretty decent uh, as far as accessibility goes, but the bathroom was atrocious. There were no grab bars on either side of the toilet. There was one uh, in a weird spot in the shower that I was sort of able to use, but it was, the toilet was so low that I could not get up off the toilet and I had nothing to hang on to. It was really, really bad situation. Yeah. And um, so what I did is I grabbed two, uh, two hand towels, not the, not the small ones, but the, the, the larger hand towels. Right. I, roll, I rolled them up tightly. I put one on each side of the, the toilet seat and I duct taped them to the toilet seat to make my own kind of riser. And, oh. that, and I still, because I had to sit on the toilet sideways because that was the only way I could grab on to the grab bar the one vertical grab bar that was on the shower wall right. and my wheelchair to kind of sit myself up and not have the edge of the toilet seat dig into my tailbone because I couldn't sit on the toilet seat the normal way front, you know, front to back. Right. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, that, that was just one example of, of the duct tape use and other, other situations, but uh, you never, you just never know. And then the grabber, especially when I'm by myself, if I'm traveling with somebody else, no big deal. But if something rolls under the sink, if you drop the remote control and it falls under the bed, yes. um, if there's a, a light switch or you can't close the curtains, uh, that, that grabber, and I have one that, that splits in half and it folds so it fits into my carry-on. Um, but yeah, having that grabber is, is a lifesaver, when, especially when you're traveling by yourself. That is a great idea. I, I use my trekking poles for for different, like when you say about closing a curtain or flipping a switch, yeah. I use my trekking poles for that sometimes, depending yeah. on where I'm lying in the, yeah. on the bed in the hotel or even grocery shopping. If I can't get something off a shelf, oh, I will flip that thing up and just yank it oh, yes. off the yep. shelf. It works. And I've had people come up to me, they're like, I need one of those. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But you, um, one of the books that you've written is Wheelchair Travel uh, Cruises and Cruising, yeah. correct? Yeah, everything you need to know about wheelchair accessible cruising. That is so cool. And like how many cruises have you been on? Uh, I've been on total, I've been on 21, but 16 of those as a wheelchair user. Oh my gosh. Okay. And that's really not that many. You start talking to some of these seniors because most yes. of the cruises I go on, it's all seniors and they've been on like 100 cruises, 200 yes. cruises. It's insane. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts on cruises now with COVID? Oh, I wouldn't go. I, I, I love cruising. I went on like, I think eight cruises last year. And uh, I actually, my accessible travel agency, I used to do more than uh, different types of trips and everything, but now I only book cruises. So for me personally, like I don't want to go anywhere near a cruise until there's a safe and effective vaccine yeah. just because I travel alone and it's not so much, it's not so much the fear of getting sick. It's the fear of getting sick and quarantined on a cruise ship for two weeks yeah. or getting stuck in some foreign country, you know, with uh, that whole mess with the diamond princess, I think, you know, taught us a lot of lessons and yes. taught a lot of us to be very, very careful. Um, and everybody has their own threshold. Uh, for, yeah. for, for traveling and everything. And I've kept in close contact with the cruise lines like most travel agents have. And we read all of their emails and, and what the, the plan is and about, you know, wearing masks and how they're disinfecting things and getting tested within three days and all this stuff. And, and the cruise lines are hurting big time. And it breaks yeah. my heart because there are so many travel agents out there and travel agencies that are 
that are hurting and, and cruise lines are losing just millions and millions of dollars every month. And yeah, it, it's, it, it's been a real big hit. And I just, I love cruising and I love the opportunity that, that cruising offers people with disabilities because it's really one of the best ways for wheelchair users to travel. Um, and another one of the, the hard things about it is that I'm ma majorly concerned is that I work with a lot of companies that provide wheelchair accessible shore excursions around the world, particularly, uh -huh. particularly in, in Europe. And uh, most of these are mom and, mom and pop shop operations and yeah. with a very narrow uh, profit margin. So I don't even know how many of these accessible uh, tour operators are going to be in business once things ramp up. So that's going to affect a lot of what we can do. And currently, some of the cruise lines are saying that the only shore excursions that people will be allowed to go on are going to be on ones offered by the cruise line uh, because that allows them to keep track of everybody and keep everyone together and make sure that nobody gets exposed to things uh, out of their control if they go with somebody independent. And here I am raising my hand going, hey, well, you guys don't really offer that many shore excursions that are accessible. So what am I supposed to do? Pay $5,000 for, for a week with, with my family and just stay on the ship. So they've, they've taken a look at making some exceptions for that, but it's, it's really, really hard for uh, wheelchair users if that's going to be the case because there just really aren't that many offerings for getting off the ship. Uh, but from what I'm seeing so far is that a lot of the cruise lines are going to start with short cruises and going to their private islands in the Bahamas because ah. it's a more controlled environment. Right. Um, so I've, yeah, I've, I've been to Coco Cay. I haven't been to Labadee in Haiti. Uh, there are many private islands that uh, I can't go to because it's tender only and I can't get off the ship. Uh, but I, I, I book most of my clients on Celebrity or Royal Caribbean. So they've got, they've got Coco Cay and Labadee and stuff out there. So I, I think it's a smart way to go. It's just kind of you know, dipping your toes into the water and, and having a more controlled environment. Uh, I don't mind wearing a mask. If that's the only way that I can cruise is wearing a mask, I'll do it. But there are a lot of cruisers that are like, mm -mm, no, I'm not interested in that. So it's all in, it's all in your personal comfort uh, as far as the, the potential for, again, not only getting infected, but what's going to be done with you. <laughs> and even if you don't get infected, what's going to be done with you if somebody else on the ship gets sick? Uh, so it's all about, it's all about risk uh, and what, you're, what level of risk you're willing to accept. So where were you? when COVID started locking countries down? Uh, I was at home. On, I don't travel that much over the winter months because I, I can't really, the play, I'm normally in Europe. That's my number one destination. And uh, I don't do Europe in the winter because I can't do snow uh, or right. ice or anything with my right. chair. So I was actually, I didn't have any, uh, I had, I think one or two trips and one trip maybe in February. I didn't go anywhere in December, January. And I was actually, my last trip, I returned from Hawaii on March 4th and things were starting to heat up. Yeah. And I was really, really, really nervous about that trip. But Hawaii had almost no cases, I think, at the time. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, I got tested for antibodies about a month after that trip because nobody was wearing masks at the time except for, um, typically, the Asian visitors uh, always wear, they've been wearing masks forever, just with right. cold. So, right. um, but uh, Hawaii is a big hub for, uh, Asian airlines that are flying back and forth from from Japan and from China and from Korea uh, and other countries, and they're all the all of all of the flight crews were staying in my hotel uh, from all different countries, and I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me! And of course, you don't know who's coming in from. So I was I was a little nervous, and I went on tours, and I was around a lot of people. So, but I went, and everything was fine, and I wasn't infected or anything like that. But it was, it was enough that I was worried about whether or not I should go. And I got back and that was my last trip. So I haven't been on a plane since March 4th. Wow. You must be chomping at the bit. Um, part of me is, yeah. I mean, but for different, different reasons now. Uh, I've been so super busy with, uh, with voiceover work and, and now uh, commercial acting work and things like that. So it's not for, for a lack of, of work to do, but my kids are now living in Germany because they have a, a military dad and their dad transferred out to Germany a month ago. So now oh my, my kids are now my kids are in Europe and because of the European mm. travel restrictions and because of, you know, trying to protect my health and I'm not sure when I'm going to see my kids. So yeah. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to travel out there to, that was my original plan. I had canceled most of my travel 
for this year and next year so I could spend all the time and money I could going out there to, to travel around the continent with them. So that's, that's on hold for now. That would be cool. Aren't you afraid to go back to Frankfurt? <laughs> oh my God. Well, now I know, but now I know better. It's like, no, make sure you schedule more than an hour and 40 minutes for a layover, which it's, that goes totally against all of my common sense and advice, but it just so happened that the return trip from, from Rome for that particular trip, I, I had no, there was no way around it. Um, that was right. the only, that was really my only option. So I had to kind of suck it up, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not making that mistake again. <laughs> Um, I have one last question for you, and then I want you to um, me let us know where we can find all of your information. Sure. What words of advice would you give to someone who's just transitioned into becoming a wheelchair user and they still want to travel? What piece of advice would you give to them? I would tell them to take baby steps. That absolutely baby steps so that you can incrementally increase your, uh, your comfort level um, and start, and, and those baby steps go with, with starting local. Because especially if you're new to using a wheelchair, whether it's a power chair, I, I can't really speak to the manual chair because that's a totally different skill set than I have. Um, so first, you, you really need to feel comfortable with your body and know what you can handle because travel does take, especially international travel, takes a toll on your body and it stresses you out. No matter how much you have planned ahead of time, it stresses you out. So it's best to you know, start, start with transportation options in your own city or town. You know, try taking uh, the public bus and see how that works with, with tie downs and with buttons and getting on the bus and off the bus. Then if you have a local subway system or uh, a train or a tram, you know, start with that. Uh, see if there's any accessible taxi service and try that. Then maybe stay in a hotel for a hotel room for a night in your city. Because if you go and things are garbage and it's not accessible, then they can refund your money and you can turn around and go home and sleep in your bed if that doesn't work out. Because it's just a different, it's just a different skill set and it's a different set of rules, unfortunately, for us so starting out local and then you expand and then maybe go on a road trip and spend two nights, uh, three hours away. Um, so at least again, if, if things go sideways, you're at least driving distance from home and then you work your way up to, to a flight and, and building upon that. And once your confidence builds up, then it helps really reduce your fear because uh, getting over the fear, that is the hardest part about accessible travel. It's not about, you know, it's not about the logistics or, or anything like that. But it, once you get over the psychological stuff, or at least know how to keep it in check, then it makes everything else so much easier. That's great advice. Great advice. Sylvia, where can people, where would you most like them to find you? I, it, something else that we, I don't think I mentioned is you have a YouTube channel. That has, I do. has some incredible, you know, short, sweet video with tips and tricks and travel and and just life with ms um that i i think is invaluable i think people would really find value thank you thank um, you yeah, I think it's just under sylvia longmire correct um it's no actually it's a it's sm longmire is the name of the channel um okay. but the, I've, I've just i have it in so many different places that changing it now is just would be impossible but really the the best hub for links to all my social media all my articles, links to my books and, and all that stuff is just through my blog at uh, spintheglobe.net. And make sure it's .net and .com because sometimes people make that mistake. But, but yeah, www.spintheglobe, like spinning around, spintheglobe.net. And there, uh, again, you have links to my Instagram, my YouTube and Facebook and all of that fun stuff and, uh, and links to where you can buy my, my books. Incredible. I am just, I'm just loving this. I'm just loving it. Oh, this is so fun. <laughs> well, Sylvia, thank you so much for coming on. And um, good luck with everything. I cannot wait to see what you do next once the world opens up again. Thank you. Me too. I'm excited. As, I'm excited for that as well. <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, that's the thing. You're going to be facing a whole new world because yeah. everybody's going to be doing life in a, a completely different way, I'm sure, from this point forward. You know, COVID or not, I'm sure yeah. many of the rules will stay in place that, you know, we didn't have a year ago, but now we do. 
So, yeah, we just do what the military teaches us and adapt and adapt and overcome. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly correct. I've used that term many, many times. Yep. Um, Sylvia, thank you so much. You take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brooke. Take care. Thanks so much. For more information on the MS Gym, check them out at themsgym.com on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to know what I've been up to lately, you can find me at brookslick.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of the MS Gym Podcast.